Hello fellow survivors and welcome to another episode of At the End of the Line, a rail tour of post-apocalyptic England. I'm your host and amateur exologist Richard Oliver. For those listening for the first time, perhaps you have managed to cobble together a working radio out of assorted electrical junk or something like that, this is essentially a travelogue of my train journey around post-apocalyptic England, and also bringing you news, updates and whatever else might be useful. In our last episode, we were rescued slash captured by the Weird Adler Company. Most of the crew and passengers had already left the train to fight over a worthless box, made seemingly precious by a complex mixture of neuropsychology and advertising. The Weird Adler Company, always looking for an opportunity, pressed their claim of ownership over the train, and with few people left to argue with them, they were successful. The Weird Adler Company would point out that they had in fact paid for a lot of the train. The Central Government Authority would probably counter that argument by saying the Weird Adler Company had abandoned the train and committed many acts of treason. So each side had some valid points. I, of course, have taken their shilling and am an employee of the Weird Adler Company with annual leave, flexible working and a salary. All of those little extras the CGA didn't really believe in. One of the most urgent aspects of the Weird Al the company's takeover of the train is branding. Seemingly overnight, the decoration of the train had changed to their colours of red, black and white, their pyramid logo had replaced a dozen or so different organisations, and jolly motivational posters had replaced information cards of what to do in the event of a fire. The Weird Al company are very keen to keep the podcast going, and they have promised me nothing will change. I'll even get my assistant Knox back, you know, once they've got him to be a bit less homicidal. My new employees have promised me that they could get everything back to normal, more or less, though some of the survivors were likely to suffer trauma from what they had done. Unfortunately, there would be no convenient amnesia. I had been assigned a Weird Adler Company mentor, someone who would help me adjust to their way of doing things and get me what I needed. My mentor is an efficient woman named Tanya Evergreen, who is seemingly psychic in her ability to know what I'm going to ask her for. She seems perfectly nice, but I am still suspicious of the company in general. That said, Tanya is incredibly professional. I can see her now through the glass of the recording studio giving me an encouraging thumbs up, listening to me question her motives, and has made things run quite smoothly. One of Evergreen's first duties was to prepare me for my first assignment. What had previously been a carriage containing journal archives had been turned into a presentation room. The chairs around me were filled by a variety of people, some wearing company uniforms, others looking more independent. Evergreen had presented me with a range of Wade Adler Company branded equipment, and she accurately judged from the look on my face that I was not interested. Evergreen transformed from the eager helper to informative expert, and I reminded myself that the way she presented herself to me was not necessarily the complete picture. I settled in for the presentation and was assaulted with a meticulously assembled PowerPoint presentation. Evergreen showed us a map of England and then zoomed into a small area. Evergreen began by saying in pre-apocalyptic times, England had been famous for its mild weather. It had summers that rarely disturbed the practice of using a hosepipe, and winters that did nothing worse than delay trains. The apocalypse had had a huge impact on the planet's weather systems. Deserts had become swamps, forests had turned into barren wastelands. But not England. No, things got a little bit more extreme, but nothing like in other countries, and it kept its reputation for mildness. Apart from this one area. 
For most of the time, this area was covered by thick snow and temperatures so low people were frozen solid. Sometimes it was racked by terrible electrical storms or fierce winds, but usually it was just the snow. The Weed Adler Company had been intrigued by this area for some time and had finally found a structure at the centre of the area, and they really did mean centre, and that did give the impression the building was somehow involved in this odd weather, and we were going to find out. A dozen or so hands were raised, including my own. Evergreen came to me first. How will we survive? I asked. There was silence for a few seconds and then some laughs and some muttered comments that sounded like the word coward. My old colleagues were used to my more cautious ways and most had adjusted, but things weren't quite the same with this new lot. Evergreen congratulated me on an excellent question and explained that the company believed that a patch of relative good weather was coming soon, allowing a team to reach a structure. She added that, of course, we'd have state-of-the-art extreme weather clothing and other gadgets that would help us. I didn't dare ask the other question that was on my mind, which was, yes, this lot of hardened soldiers might manage it, but would I? I presumed Evergreen had thought of that. The rest of the questions were rather technical, and a few about bonus pay and overtime. Worryingly, a lot of these questions were focused on what would happen should lots of them die but they seemed to be placated by Evergreen's assurance they would still all get paid. It began to dawn on me that for all their awesome power, the way that the company were on payroll glitch from being completely helpless. I had been guaranteed that the company would protect me, but was it more or less reassuring to know that those doing the protecting expected to be paid? The briefing ended and we went through to the equipment carriage. I couldn't help but notice that all of my clothing had no company logos on and was entirely free of branding. Evergreen was doing her job very well. Fully kitted out, we left the train, and I was far too hot. I'd been told to expect this, but even so, it took its toll. We walked for nearly an hour before we spotted the first snow, and quickly the temperature dropped, and I changed to desperately missing the heat at the beginning of the journey. It was a cold like I had never experienced before. The snow grew deeper and deeper, and then it actually started snowing a fierce snowstorm that reduced visibility to almost zero. Various procedures were put in place. One of them involved someone running a rope through a metal loop on my belt to stop me wandering off. Apparently in these conditions that happened easily. We slowly kept going, knowing that this relative warm period wouldn't last forever. Occasionally electronic devices were checked and assurances were passed around that we were heading in the right direction. There was an odd moment when we stopped for a minute and then stored up again. As we moved forward, I saw what it must have been. There were several people, frozen solid, still standing. A horrific warning of what could happen. On this edition of Who's On Board, I am pleased to see we have Paige Morgan. Paige is a PhD student carrying out research for her thesis on overpopulation. Is that right, Paige? Hello, Richard. Yes, but it's a little complicated. I started my PhD eight months before the apocalypse started, and yes, then it was looking at the problem of overpopulation. Many of my listeners might be unaware, but before the apocalypse, one of the biggest concerns in the world was the rise in population. Yes, absolutely. We were worried we'd run out of fuel and food, that the population could hit 9, 10 billion, and it just wasn't possible to sustain. People saw a brutal future of wars for scarce resources and hundreds of millions starving. And then the apocalypse happened. So your studies changed? Not at first. I mean, I was in the apocalypse and I was just trying to survive. 
But even during this time, you kept working on your thesis. Yes. I think at first I was just trying to cling to something normal. But I kept writing, making notes, and I interviewed people whenever possible. Now, you were studying at Collingbone University in New York City. At the time, one of the biggest cities in the world. Just over 20 million people lived there when I did. And the population today is? Around 10 million. But it is hard to get accurate information, and it wouldn't be accurate that 10 million of the original 20 million population died. Millions of people fled densely populated areas. Did you flee New York? Yes, a lot of the east coast of North America dealt with monsters from the sea, so I headed further inland. But wherever I went, there was some new danger there, so I was always on the move. And I made it right to the west coast of North America. And what were your findings in terms of population? That North America had suffered a catastrophic drop in population. I passed through ghost towns and deserted cities, sites of destruction and carnage. It was unsettling, but it all went into thesis. I next found myself in the University of Chicago. I was close to submitting my thesis then, but as you know, Chicago was struck by a bout of the murder plague and narrowly avoided being murdered on at least a dozen occasions. And admittedly, when I briefly came down with the murder plague, I tried to kill a few people, including my thesis supervisor. So I moved on. That's understandable. I went to Stanford, and that went well for a while, but then... You've heard of the California corpses? Dean me, that happened when you were there. For listeners who don't know, a team of scientists at Stanford carried out experiments on bringing people back from the dead. Long story short, a third of California went up in smoke fighting the corpses. Yes, and while Stanford survived, it again seemed time to move on. Next, I was in Cairo University, but when after the Queen of Steel was turning everyone into cyborgs... Briefly in Kyoto University, but left when the werewolves showed up. Finally made it to Hittleberg University, nearly finished my thesis, and my supervisor suggested I join the train to learn more about Europe. And last time I checked, Heidelberg University is still there and will be there when I'm finished. Fingers crossed. To some, it may sound as if you were cursed by these unfortunate events, but really, any number of people who have survived the apocalypse have very similar stories. It's how these people have survived. All the times that I've been forced to move have given me a unique perspective. So, some good has come of it. I can't imagine a similar sort of document existing. A serious study of such terrible events on such a worldwide scale as is happening. Thank you. It wasn't how I planned things, but that's life. Now, I did want to ask you a specific question. The Central Government Authority has been rather cagey in what it believes the population of the world to be. A little while ago, one of my listeners asked that very question. I was hoping you might be able to shed some light on this. Well, Richard, I have been contacted by the CGA who have asked me, and I must stress that they only asked not to divulge too much information about this. But I will say I fall on the side of the more optimistic estimates of the world's population. So, that's something. Last question. What do you think about the population of England? I won't lie to you, Richard. It doesn't look good. But I've seen worse. That seems like as good as I can expect. Thank you again for your time, Paige. Good luck with your thesis. We carried on for another hour, and the storm lessened somewhat. Then someone saw it. A solitary building that, while it dominated the area because of its size, looked fairly innocuous. There were no suspicious satellite dishes beaming out weather control and rays or anything like that. I was overcome with a feeling of relief as I was growing increasingly worried that I would die out here in the cold.
which trudged forward when I felt the temperature dip suddenly. An odd chill took hold of me. Shouted conversations quickly took place, of which I could only hear every other word, but the gist was the temperature was dropping very, very quickly. I glanced over my shoulder and could see a thick snowstorm approaching, almost like a white cloud consuming everything. I didn't wait for any instructions and started running towards the building. I say running. It was impossible to run through the snow, but I went as quickly as possible. I begged my aching legs to keep going, my brain firing dire threats as to what would happen if my limbs could not go faster. I could see the doors to the building, but could feel the cold all around me and threw myself against the glass doors. Of course, the doors had quietly slid open as I approached, so I hit the floor hard. I lay there breathing slowly and was vaguely aware of other people joining me. Eventually I managed to sit up and take in my surroundings. We were in what looked like an airlock. I crawled towards the inner door which didn't open. I finally managed to get to my feet and look back at the door I had just door through. You couldn't see anything outside, it was just a white, blurry mass. A light above the door flicked from green to red and I guess that the red light meant the door wouldn't open. I turned around. I turned round, the light above the locked door changed to green. I approached and this time it slid open and I found myself again in a similar airlock. I peered along the corridor and could see at least another four doors to get through. Evergreen took charge before we went any further and the first thing she did was to work out if we had all made it. We hadn't. We had lost four soldiers and one scientist. It was a near certainty they were dead. We slowly made our way through the airlocks. Presumably this was a safety measure to keep the cold out and we could understand that. Why aren't any of these locked? One of the soldiers asked. They're hardly expecting anyone to make it through that, said Evergreen quietly. She was right. The weather outside was better than any lock. We passed through the final airlock and were presented with a normal metal door. Evergreen stepped forward and turned the handle. We walked into a well-lit, tidy and above all warm room. It seemed like some sort of reception with a small unmanned desk in front of us. There was a loud clatter and the sound of breaking crockery. I turned to see a woman standing beside a tray, several broken mugs and a pool of coffee. I put my hands out in a gesture of peace, which was completely undermined by the sound of a gun being cocked behind me. The woman ran. A shot was fired and just missed her. Evergreen shouted out for no one else to fire, but they did start chasing the woman. Not knowing what else to do, so did I. The woman reached the end of a long corridor and turned left. As soon as some of our group rounded the corner, I heard gunfire. I stopped dead before I reached the corner and flattened myself against the wall. The rest of the company staff had made it round and were now caught in a huge gunfight. I could hear shots, screams and even occasional explosions. A company soldier staggered back round the corner with several wounds to his chest before he collapsed next to me. I edged closer to the corner and tentatively looked round. There was a high-pitched whistle and then everything went black. I woke a few minutes later lying on the floor. I jumped to my feet and looked round. To my right was a line of people on their knees with zip cusps round their wrists. Several company soldiers kept a wary eye on them while the rest were missing, presumably exploring the building. What happened? I asked no one in particular. Concussion grenade, said one of the soldiers. Why didn't you duck? I don't think he really expected an answer, but presumably that was what the whistle had been about. It reminded me of what happened when I had met the superhero McIntyre, which confirmed, if confirmation was still needed, that he had been the weird idler company who had kidnapped him. I looked at the people on their knees. 
they, these were the people who ran the building. They looked like nice, ordinary people. And not at all like they were surviving in a post-apocalyptic world. They wore nice clean clothes, in good condition. Their hair was clean, and they had an actual haircut. They looked healthy and well-fed. If you put a gun to my head, which does occasionally happen to me, I would say they looked like scientists. I was torn between trying to find Evergreen and find out what was going on, and making sure the company soldiers didn't overreact to someone coughing by shooting them. Fortunately, I didn't have to make the decision as Evergreen came back into the room with a few other company staff. I walked up to her but she strode straight past me and went to the line of kneeling prisoners. She walked back and forth across the line and eventually stopped by a middle-aged man. Hi, my name is Tanya. I have some questions about this building. Could you answer them? Her tone was light and friendly but the man didn't seem to be buying it and said nothing. Tanya chose another person, a young woman. She might have actually been the one who had dropped the tray of drinks when we arrived. Listen, we got off to a bad start. We killed some of your people, you killed some of ours. Let's see we're even and have a fresh start, okay? The woman thought about this for a moment. Okay, she said and Evergreen smiled happily. So what is it you do here? The woman said nothing. We're going to find out sooner or later anyway. You might as well just tell me now. Evergreen spoke in an exceedingly reasonable manner that had me convinced serious violence was imminent when her reasonable demands were not met. There was silence. One of the soldiers stepped alongside Evergreen. I can shoot her, she said. That would send a message to the others. Evergreen thought about this for a moment. No, I have a better idea. Ten minutes later we were standing by the series of airlocks. We're going to play a game, said Evergreen. We've hacked the safety controls on these doors, and every time you don't answer a question, you get pushed through to the next door until, eventually, well, you'll be outside. I looked on in horror. Evergreen picked three people and put them by the first door. How does the building control the weather, she asked the first person. When there was no reply, she nodded. One of the soldiers opened the door and dragged the person through to the next section. It didn't take long for one of the people, the woman who had dropped the coffee, to reach the final section. The outer door was opened and we could all feel the cold. Last chance, said Evergreen. Who built this facility? I ran forward to try and speak to Evergreen, but I was stopped. One of the soldiers caught me gently but firmly by the arm and twisted. I found myself on the floor and pinned in such a way that struggling was useless. It hadn't hurt at all, but I couldn't do much about anything. I would later learn Evergreen had instructed the soldiers on how to deal with me if I became difficult. I was to be stopped, but not hurt or injured. Evergreen briefly glanced over at me, but then went back to her game. She stared at the woman for a long moment, and when there was no reply, Okay, send her out, she said. A soldier grabbed her by the collar, and one of the other prisoners shouted for them to stop. Evergreen held up her hand and looked at the prisoner. It was built by the Met Office, said the man, after the apocalypse started. Evergreen smiled pleasantly and turned back to the soldier. Close the door, please. The soldier sealed the outer door with everyone still inside. Seeing as I now work for the Wade Adler Company, 
I thought it wouldn't be too difficult getting access to Elizabeth Lizzie Cooper, also known as Queen Elizabeth III, the former social media consultant for the company on this very train. I thought wrong. The last anyone outside the company had heard from Lizzie was the broadcast she made from London, shortly before she was attacked by mutants. Many people have suggested that perhaps she didn't survive that attack, meaning that any claim she might have had to England would be meaningless. While I am assured Elizabeth Cooper is fit and well, apparently she is far too busy to meet with me. Instead, the Weird Adler Company press office gave me a list of the useful technological advances they've made by utilising inventions from post-apocalyptic England and suggested I talk about that, but unfortunately that list fell in the bin and then caught fire. So with nothing else to fill the dead air, I decided to talk about something completely unrelated. Long-time post-apocalyptic radio show and podcast, This Apocalyptic Life, recently released an episode profiling Elizabeth Cooper, focusing particularly on her disappearance. A team of journalists and researchers have worked on compiling her history and life story, including the timeline of her last day in London. And well, spoiler alert, they think she's probably dead. I would like to argue with them, but I've seen nothing to indicate she's actually still alive. Now, way back in the first episode of A Rail 2 of Post-Apocalypse England, I mentioned that my preferred make of gas mask was a Wade Adler Company Gentleman Gas Mask Mark V. However, after having another look at the market, I find the Exterminate the Resistant Gas Mask Deluxe a superior product. It offers equal protection and is 20% cheaper. When you want to kill a lot of people as quickly and brutally as possible, the market leader for a long time has been the Wade Adler Company War Ender, a 2.5 metre tall robot with armour plating and machine guns for hands, and with only a poorly copied version of the Geneva Convention as restraint. But consumer magazine What Weapon placed it at number 6 in their list of robotic killing machines, and they suggested the best buy was the Corvine Industries Eliminator version 4.5. Finally, a report by the Central Government Authority has issued a severe safety warning against all Genesis computer models, due to the likelihood of them sucking you into a virtual world where you are forced to compete in a never-ending and incredibly dangerous series of extreme sports competitions against other unlucky individuals. On a side note, Genesis Computer's owner is the Wade Adler Company. So there we have some completely unrelated stories that drifted across my desk this week. Who knows what I'll have seen by the next episode. With Evergreen satisfied she had made her point, we returned to more comfortable surroundings. The three prisoners were placed with their colleagues and Evergreen ordered them all to be released from their restraints. Now, I think we understand each other. I have some more questions. But first things first. Michael, could you do a coffee run? Michael, one of the more sinister-looking soldiers, took everyone's order, including the prisoners, and vanished in the kitchens. Evergreen then introduced herself to everyone and then asked for them to introduce themselves to the group. I had the feeling I was attending a team-building conference, but was glad we had moved on to the coffee-drinking stage rather than murder. I quickly lost track of names and job titles, but Evergreen had the knack of remembering them all perfectly. So, Peter, may I call you Peter? She asked Peter Nunn, who I believed was the person in charge, director or something or other. He nodded and so she continued. So Peter, 
what you're saying is this place doesn't control the weather? With the grace that comes from decades of being an academic, he uttered the catchphrase of virtually all scientists and great fingers. Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Evergreen's presentation had mentioned England's mild weather and how it continued even through the apocalypse. Well, this building was the reason for that. The terrible, lethal weather that had done so much damage around the rest of the world should have afflicted this country as well. There was a lot of science that followed, but essentially, this building was a lightning rod. It attracted the extreme weather and concentrated it into a small area. A country's worth of destruction focused on a few square miles. This building was something of a rarity in the post-apocalypse. It was a success. The team had been left there for years, dedicated to protecting the country, and they didn't really have anywhere else to go. They had supplies for decades, wind turbines generated electricity, and they were as comfortable as anyone else in England. And of course, while the terrible weather kept people away, it also trapped them inside. Evergreen seemed very interested in this technology. Evidently, my podcast wasn't the only thing she was working on. I mean, I never wanted a producer in the first place. But if I'm forced to have one, she might as well be focused on my podcast and not other projects. Instead, she's splitting her time between working on my show and plotting world domination. So, if we were to move this building to London, hypothetically, said Evergreen, the bad weather would be focused there instead. The staff confirmed her hypothesis. I could see Evergreen's mind working. Originally, I'm sure she had come to this place to find a weapon, but instead she had found a defence. The disappointment on her face was obvious. I approached Evergreen slowly and making it clear that I had no ill intent. Surely we should just leave this place alone, I said. If we try and tamper with it, we could destroy the whole country. I wasn't sure that the destruction of England was really a drawback to the Weirdada Company. After all, their plan was to turn it into a quarantined apocalypse zone and extract anything useful that came out, hardly the motives of a careful guardian. After a worryingly long pause, Evergreen shrugged. It's not really for me to say. I'll have to fire this up to the people in charge. Maybe turning England into one big glacier is what they're looking for. Evergreen strode over to the building staff. When will it be safe to make the journey back? They looked at each other in surprise, and all of them mumbled that they had no idea, and quite frankly, they were amazed that group had made it through unscathed. Hardly unscathed, snorted one of the soldiers. We lost people just before we made it inside. The staff exchanged worried glances. Evergreen picked up on the nervous energy and wanted to know what they were so concerned about. Zombies, said one of the staff before another shouted out, You don't know that's what happened and they fell into a furious debate before Evergreen silenced them by firing into the air and demanded clear answers. It turned out some of their group had tried leaving before. Several years ago, five of them had left, hoping to find civilization. Only one had made it back and told a frightful story of his colleagues succumbing to the cold before being resurrected, seemingly drawn towards the heat of the living which they drained from them, leaving them dead. This lone survivor died shortly after relating this to his colleagues. I had never heard of this before, but I had experienced four other things and was prepared to believe it. Evergreen looked concerned. Can they get inside? she asked. The unpleasant answer was, maybe. The doors had safeguards against them, but after Evergreen's people had been tampering with their security systems, who knew? 
Aragorn clearly didn't like the sound of this and started walking towards the doors, barking the names of several soldiers to come with her. I was torn between following Evergreen and staying put. Going with her seemed the obvious choice, but I actually wanted to speak to the staff and, and that might be easier with Evergreen not looming over my shoulder. The staff were all clumped together. The company soldiers had formed a wide circle around them, but suddenly seemed more concerned with outside threats. Oddly, the company scientists weren't talking to their counterparts in the building. I'd have thought they would be pestering them with questions. The CGA scientists definitely would have been. Still, this gave me an opportunity. I walked towards the staff and through the line of soldiers and no one seemed to object. I introduced myself and was pleased to see that a couple of them were fans. And yes, even during life and death situations, I am vain enough to be bothered about my own small celebrity. This was actually useful as naturally they were wary of me as my companions had violently stormed into their home. But as some of them knew the particulars of how I came to be working for the way of the company, they were able to somewhat vouch for me. Now obviously, my most pressing questions were around potential ice zombies, but as a radio professional, I know you need a little more finesse, and started asking them about themselves and their work. They were an amiable bunch of people, all told, apart from one of them who snapped at me. He just wants to know about the zombies. I was about to defend my honour, such as it is, when there was a scream and a burst of gunfire in the distance. Maybe you best tell me about these zombies, I said, turning pale. And we'll leave it there for this episode of us potentially trapped forever and being preyed upon by ice zombies. At the End of the Line was written and performed by Richard Oliver. Holly Ritchie is our producer and editor. Find her on Twitter at AllRightBorbag. That's A-L-R-I-G-H-T-B-A-W-B-A-G-G. In this episode, Paige Morgan was played by Alicia Atkins. Find Alicia on Twitter at Reckless Anarchy. Alicia is a guest narrator on the Creepy Podcast, is the voice of Cappy on the Beacon Podcast, and is the voice of director Ellen Road on Copperheart. Our theme music is by Chip Michael. Find more of his music at soundcloud.com forward slash Chip Michael. Chip is also part of the Tales of Sage and Savant podcast, which I highly recommend. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at PostApoc Podcast. Anyone wanting to submit questions, ask for advice, and make urgent pleas for help should tweet us or send an email to at the end of the line podcast at gmail.com. For more information on the show, please go to our website at the end of the line podcast dot squarespace dot com.